Father in heaven, we do long to be people who are faithfully living for you. I'm living in a way that pleases you. Living in a, an intentional way where we make decisions to do certain things and not do other things rather than um, jumping to the, the sound of the beats and the notifications that technology can give us. Uh, speak to us this evening. Soften our hearts. Help us to think carefully. And be at work as we discuss um, in groups and pairs, as we um, listen, as we consider. Um, speak to us, we pray. We long to be faithful. Um, in Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about this book first. That's probably the most helpful thing. Um, it is a, two years old, 2007. I don't know how you pronounce his name. Tony Reinke, maybe. We'll, we'll just sound confident. That sounds good. Um, he it works um, with the Desire of God um, organisation. So he kind of works with John Piper, if those are the kind of names you might recognise, and that's his sort of stable. Um, it, it's a book that he wrote over, a, it seems to me, two or three years, including various articles and stuff, and he wrote to a variety of people, um, various ethicists, uh, various Christians in a sort of uh, areas of responsibility, I guess, so church pastors and leaders and kind of rappers and people in the, in the music industry as well, and just a variety of folks talking about phones and how they are changing us and how we should use them faithfully. Um, I will quote from various people as we go through. Um, it, it's, a, it's a book of 12 chapters, grouped essentially into six ways, and I'll show you what I mean by that. Essentially, there's one chapter that says, here's what the phone potentially does, and then there's a paired chapter that says, and here are the potential implications of the phone doing that. That makes sense. He said he talked about these 12 different things, and I will try essentially and spend three, four, five minutes on each one. Um, yes, I want to say as well, if you want to use your, your phones um, to uh, take photos and take notes, that kind of thing, I have an app here that tells me what things you're going on, so I can see when you're getting bored and going on to tw- Twitter or Angry Bird. I don't. The look on your face is there. Oh, that was good. <laughs> Someone needs to note to self, find an app that does that for me. That'd be amazing. <laughs> um, but essentially, twelve different areas of phone usage and how it um, has implications for us as believers. I will just read through them quickly, but not say too much because we will get to them. So essentially, the way he's done it is he's got a massive sandwich construction in the book, where chapter one goes to chapter twelve, two with eleven, all the way through. So you can see I've kind of coupled them together for you. Um, So he talks about amplifying our addiction to distractions and therefore splinters our perception of our place in time. Because we're so distracted, we forget where we sit, what time this is in terms of God's big plan, um, but also our priorities and responsibilities. We talked last week on Sunday mornings in terms of the body that we have. We have bodies. And because we sort of seek to push to evade the limits of of our bodiliness, then that causes us to treat one of the harshly. You see so much anger online because we forget there's a person behind that avatar, um, whatever it might be. Uh, people are craving for immediate approval. We put something up online, we post onto whatever, and we think, why has no one seen it? Why has no one liked it? And you keep flicking back to see, oh, oh yeah, okay, this coming in now, it's good, and the dopamine hits. Um, which then means there's a linking with the idea of missing out and FOMO. 
and we're always online looking for the hit of people liking our stuff, but also what's going on and that kind of thing. A bit of a gear change we've seen in 7 and 8, but particularly there have been studies shown that as you read on phones, we are losing the ability to actually read deeply. Because we're only looking at 280 characters or short articles or short blog posts, then as a, as a, as a people we are losing the ability to actually invest and think carefully about long um, arguments and sort of deep stuff. Um, we're just sort of skimming off the surface rather than getting deep. I don't want to criticise the book, but sometimes there's a bit of repetition. He seems to come to a similar topic from a different angle. So he talks about our um, ultimate meaning um, in, in the eighth one. Uh, the idea of a buffet of produced media. We can just go on and you go to YouTube and you can, or Netflix or whatever, and you can just get fed stuff. You can be passive and you can, we can sit there and feed. It's sort of a visual gluttony that we can enjoy, which then... He will talk about vices and various opportunities for sin online. And then the, the, the final bit, and we've mentioned, if you like, 11 um, and 12 perhaps in the mornings at MRC, but the idea of our image and our identity being ro- kind of rolled up in our online presence and wanting people to like us and that kind of stuff. We, we want to portray a particular image of who we are um, so people might accept us or so that we, we have an identity there, um, which then can feed back into isolation and loneliness because you're portraying this person who's not quite you and you're comparing yourself with other people. And Anyway, so that's roughly where we're going. Do take a photo if that's a helpful thing. Um, I think we'll try and put the PowerPoint on the church website as well. Um, I think that'll probably often happen at these Sunday evening sessions to save you scribbling too much. Let me kind of get going. Anybody know what happened on January the 9th, 2007? Launch of iPhone, the iPhone Macworld, Macworld Expo, 12 years and four days ago. Um, you could then buy it on the June 29th of that year. Time magazine said it's the single most influential gadget of all time. It fundamentally changed our relationship to computing and information. A change likely to have repercussions for decades to come. That, that may not be right. Of course, technology is always going to change the world. Um, but I suspect there's a pretty good argument that, that they are at least close to, or iPhones or phones more generally, are close to the biggest kind of gadget which has altered our reality in our world. Um, on average, we check them every 4.3 minutes of our waking lives. Um, don't really nice to check yours, but 4.3 minutes is pretty often, isn't it? And yet, I suspect you are here, as I was keen to do this subject, because there is a tension, isn't there? We, we love them and we hate them. Um, they can be glorious, beautiful things, so helpful. Uh, they are great servants, and yet if they become the master, then they can be really damaging and unhelpful. Um, uh, yeah, there are questions to be asked. I'll come to that in a second. Um, here's a great quote from Tony. I'm just going to call him Tony. Um, Renke, do you think? Tony. Um, my phone is a window into the worthless and the worthy the artificial and the authentic some days I feel as if my phone is a digital vampire sucking away my time and my life other days I feel like a cybernetic centaur part human, part digital as my phone and I blend seamlessly into a complex tandem of rhythms and routines and so we need to ask questions why is it that uh, Steve Jobs and the Apple executives shielded and continue to shield their kids from phones. 
What is that about? Um, uh, one of the people that Renke uh, wrote to um, is a, an ethicist up in um, Scotland. I think probably Josh knows Oliver O'Donovan. Probably a good friend of yours. Um, he said this concerning this. He said, This generation has the unique task assigned to it of discerning what the new media are really good for. That is, taking a step back and rather than just listening to the beats and the things sucking us in, thinking, what is this for? What should we use it for? What tool do we have in our hands here? Is this a, a screwdriver or a hammer in one sense? Um, rather than being told what the tool is, actually to think that through. What is technology for? What are our goals? Um, again, the notifications, the beats and reminders are, are made to suck you in. And we'll think about captology in a bit. Um, as well as that, though, phones, and you will probably find this as well if you're self-aware, phones are a window into our hearts and desires. Um, one of the things we were chatting out in our home group on Wednesday is what we use screen time for. So the new thing on your Apple iPhone, if you have one, um, it will tell you at the end of each week how much you've used and what you've been looking at, what you've been doing, and it kind of categorises it. Also here, my phone, my um, phone screen divulges in razor-sharp pixels what my heart really wants. The glowing screen on my phone projects into my eyes the desires and loves that live in the most abstract corners of my heart and soul, finding visible expressions in pixels of images, video and text for me to see and consume and type and share. Okay, so there's the introduction. There's a tension with these things. We, we love them and we hate them. They are so helpful and yet they can be so destructive. Um, let's jump into uh, the 12 different ways uh, distraction, in one sense, is nothing new. Um, this is Pascal. He was a um, French mathematician, physicist, inventor, philosopher, theologian, writer from the 17th century. He said, um, the human appetite for distraction is high in every age because distractions give us an escape from the silence and the solitude whereby we, we become acquainted with our finitude, our inescapable mortality and the distance of God from all our desires, hopes and pleasures. So distraction has always been there. We've always been a distracted people because we don't like to think, in one sense. I had a um, uh, friend um, who was a student at Oxford 15 years ago, and one of his housemates always used to wear headphones. And he said, why do you always wear headphones? And he said, well, I'm listening to music. And why do you listen to music the whole time? Because if I didn't, I would stop and think. And it was a very deliberate thing, that he was always having something because he, he was scared of stopping, thinking, recognising his own mortality, his own littleness and smallness. Um, and so we are addicted to distraction. Um, we love distractions. And the, the, the technology that we have on our phones are, are incredible. Um, the technology I have on here, the GPS I have to find, if I needed to, from my house to here, has 30,000 ty- 30, times the processing power of the 70-pound onboard computer that guided Apollo 11 to land on the moon. We can be distracted because of the power of these machines. There is so much potential in there to doing so much good. But also, if we have hearts that want to be distracted, then so much bad. Um, Facebook tells us every average user spends 50 minutes per day in the different Facebook products. That's Instagram, Facebook and Messenger. But why do these distractions lure us? Well, we've already uh, looked at Pascal, but here are three thoughts from um, Renke. Um, number one, we procrastinate because we want to keep work away. Um, 
we procrastinate around hard things. Maybe again linking in with this morning slightly and this idea of adulting and delaying responsibility. Um, we don't like deadlines or hard conversations or laundry. And so we, we procrastinate because we demand something else. We crave something else. The second one might be to keep people away. Have you ever put your headphones on to avoid talking to someone you didn't want to talk to? To avoid that conversation, to avoid boring people, he says. Or thirdly, even to keep thoughts of eternity away. So we avoid work, and we avoid people, and we avoid thinking about eternity and the big things. Staring at our bedroom ceilings with only our thoughts about ourselves, the world and God, is unbearable. And so we distract ourselves. To numb the sting of emptiness, he says, we turn to the new and powerful antidepressants of a non-pharmacy variety. And they did impact us as believers. Doug Grusius, this was 20 years ago. Um, Prophetic. It is difficult to serve God with heart, soul, strength and mind when we are diverted, distracted and multitasking everything. A friend of mine says we have spiritual ADD. And yet, um, Renke will talk about three categories of unchecked distractions in the New Testament, in the Gospels particularly, um, but the New Testament more generally. Distractions are dangerous, the Bible tells us. Um, Think of the parable of the soils. The distractions there um, blind our souls to God. Worldly worries, anxieties, distractions that take the word from us and stop it being fruitful. Um, there are distractions with Martha and Mary. Do you remember Luke 10? sense in which the stuff that we do, the distractions that we have, can stop us um, communing with God as Martha is doing too much and stopping listening to him, to the Lord Jesus. And as well in 1 Corinthians 7, you see a, a kind of distraction mentioned there. Marriage is, is a gift, he says, but Paul also describes the demands of marriage. And so there's a sense in which distractions are important because they can get in the way of our relationship with the Lord. Um, I guess you found that on your phone when you're trying to do a quiet time, perhaps. You're trying to pray. Prayer made app is a great app to use. But I just find the other apps are too close. And I find myself, just, oh, I'm there again. Come back, come back. And my heart just wanders. It used to be, I guess, you look at something else in your room and get distracted by that. When you've got it on your phone, then they're there too. So we're people who, who are distracted and our phones do not help that. Uh, which means, secondly, we, we lose our place in time. Distractions make us forget who we are. For example, the writer of Ecclesiastes talks about there being a time for everything, a season for things. Remember, there's a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant, a time to uproot. A time to kill, a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. And he goes on and on and on. But the problem is, if you flick through Twitter, you get all these things at once. So suddenly you've received some really bad news about a friend with cancer. And then, next moment, it's a a funny meme with someone, I don't know, a, a dancing cat or something. And then the next thing, there's a link to a really helpful article. And, but we lose the sense of what season we're in because we are bombarded by so many things. We don't have time to actually engage with those things. 
And so we lose our place in time. We forget what time it is. What season are we in at this point? Is it a season of suffering and reflection? Or, or is it banal? Um, because X has sent you a funny tweet or whatever it might be. You see? So, so we're kind of ripped apart in different directions because of the way in which social media bombards us. That's the medium, if you like. The micro that Renke talks about um, is the idea, or it's, it's an interview with a dad of a young child who admitted he was meant to be there playing with his young boy and suddenly found he had been on his phone for 15 minutes um, while his son was playing cars on the floor. And he, he misses the mic. This was his time with his son and he found his phone had distracted him from that, removed him from that situation. So medium kind of Ecclesiastes, micro, just the daily faithfulness of what we're meant to be doing, being engaged in the moment. But then the macro as well, God's, we'll come on to this in a bit too, but God's big story, the big picture of the world and God's plan for the world, we can lose that because we've got all these little stories going on. And there's so many of them. And yet in the Bible, again and again, we are called to be a people who remember and we struggle to remember. We struggle to remember the, the Passover, or the Lord's Supper. And so God institutes these meals for us to help us remember. Or, or again and again in the Psalms, we are calling ourselves to remember. And yet with these incredible distractions, made to distract us in many ways, as we'll see, then actually we can lose our, our place in the story and forget who we are. Let me do two more, and then we'll have a time for Q&A and discussion. And I'm just aware I want to try and get through as much as I can, um, although you may have to buy the book. Um, we did talk about this last week in Sunday morning. Um, he talks about an incredible thing, so he's based in the States, but he talks about an incredible thing, outlining statistics to do with texting and driving. Okay, you are four times more likely to be in a car crash if you are talking on the phone while you are driving but you are 23 times more likely to be in a car crash if you are texting. And the crazy thing seems to be, in the States at least, these anti-texting laws have come in and they have actually caused a rise in serious accidents. No, Siri. Serious. (laughs) There's something there, isn't there? Anyway, um... Why have these anti-texting laws caused a rise in big accidents? <laughs> there seems to be two things at once going on. At least he brings out two things. One is that there are advertising campaigns, and they're actually on the Eastley Road now, um, talking about the idea that it is best to do two things at once. Okay, you don't want to be a person who just does one thing at once, but you want to have your phone on you do something else at the same time. You can multitask. And so these advertising campaigns pushing the idea of multitasking. Which, well, if you're driving or sat in traffic and you've got your phone, then hey, why not multitask? Because that's a better thing. Um, so there's that. Um, the second one is that if, if, if there are anti-texting laws while you're driving, what do you do? You put your phone further down so nobody can see. And then where do your eyes go? They, they go further down so nobody can see. And what do you not see? Well, cars, people bodies. Um, so that seems to be the reason, some of the studies have shown, that, that these anti-texting laws have actually increased accidents. 
which is a bit scary. Um, but it shows, doesn't it, that there's a lack of an awareness with the, the reality of the body and blood around us. Not just our own, but actually the people on the roads, the other car drivers. And because we are dominated by these little things in our hands. And so you almost forget your mortality, in one sense. Evading the limits of our embodiment. And the other thing that he brings out, I think quite helpfully, and again, this will come up on future Sunday mornings, is the idea that we are very angry with people online. If we were face to face with them, we probably wouldn't say what we are tempted to say, at least online. We would treat people quite differently. But because of this anonymity that can be there, because of this distance, because of this lack of embodiment, then we can be quite rude and unkind. And so you see these silly fights on whatever social media platform you look at. Um, Or even just texting and WhatsApping. Because there isn't a face-to-face contact and communication. A, yes, of course, we can be misunderstood, because you can't communicate quite so well, but B, that distance means we're perhaps more likely to say something a bit harsher. Um, He says this. He says... There we go. Ah, it comes down a second. Um, He says, online anger is a consequence of the division in our lives. Our attention is divided, our minds are divided, and our digital personas are separate from our flesh and blood. So these things divide us. And as they divide us, then we um, behave badly as a result. And they talked about the implications for us living as believers, the quote on on the um, screen there. And when our cognitive actions are separated from our bodily presence, we tend to over-prioritise the relatively easy interactions in the disembodied online world and undervalue the embodied nature of the Christian faith. That is, it is much easier to send a text to somebody or a tweet to somebody or a WhatsApp to somebody than actually to do something about it. It's much harder in flesh and blood to actually go and care for somebody and love them. It's pretty cheap to send a whatever it is, a praying hands. Um, but we need to actually pray. But better still, why not say, hey, give them a call and say, can I come over and can I come and help you? Um, but because of the option that we have with our phones, then we can be quite separate. And we go for the easy option. Um, and then I'll just do this, this one and then we'll have a break. Does anybody... Um, yeah, anybody know what people is? It wasn't particularly popular, which is a really good thing, but I thought I'd introduce you to it. Um, 2016, the People app was created. And you know how you go to a restaurant and you can review it now on TripAdvisor, or you go on holiday and you can review it? Well, of course, people is your chance to review people. Um, so maybe your colleagues or your friends or former romantic partners an opportunity online. It, this was a legitimate app. You, could, you can still get it. Um, but as you can imagine, it didn't go so well. It seemed, to be fair, if we're being really kind, that it was meant to be a sort of positivity thing. Um, you know, here's a chance for us to encourage people. So I'll leave you a review saying, hey, your piece of work was great. In reality, because we are broken and sinful folk, um, and there are online trolls, um, it was used as an opportunity to destroy people from a distance. And so it's not particularly popular. Um, You can probably guess. 
the preacher Charles Spurgeon once said, the easiest thing in the world is to find fault. I think that's probably fair. We are very good at critiquing, aren't we? We are very good at pulling things apart and understanding what is wrong and seeing what is wrong. It's much harder to create something positive in its stead. Um, the Washington Post said about the People app, um, it produced a, the feeling of being watched and judged at all times by an objectifying gaze to which you did not consent. Yeah. Um, Renke talks about the idea that part of our fallen nature is, is to be fascinated with the failures of others. Um, fault finding, he says, is an ancient hobby meant to prop up a facade of self-importance even among Christians. It's the way in which we compare ourselves and so we look for their issues um, and they make us perhaps feel a bit better about ourselves because they've mucked up and I would never do that or at least, you know, at least mine was a 7 out of 10 yours was probably a 6, whatever it might be. He says, though, within the church it goes against the nature of our faith. In Christ, failures and offences go into the grave but in fault-finding, we dig them back up again for everyone else to see. I think that's quite helpful. Um, another phrase that he brings up in this chapter, which is probably worth us being aware of, is the idea of outrage porn. Um, that is, it's the impulse in us to judge and punish and get riled up with righteous indignation. It's that thing on Twitter in the morning, it's like, well, what should we be cross about today then? You know, what should we go for today? Where does the Twitterati or the Twitter storm need to zoom today? And so outrage porn is just this, this tendency among, in our culture at the moment to be angry with something, to find something to be cross about and then the next day it'll be something else and something else and something else. And that frame, phrase was coined in 2009 New York Times. Um, Tim Crider, uh, he talks about the impulses to, yes, yeah, sorry, I mentioned this, to judge and to punish and to get us riled up with this indignation. And somebody else said, our culture is looking for something to be angry, frustrated and outraged about. We thrive on pessimism. We want to be acutely aware of the brokenness of things and others. I'm going to press pause. Does anybody know who's at it? Yes. Uh, she did. Her name is Asina O'Neill. Um, she was a 19-year-old Australian model. Um, she had over half a million Instagram followers and she was going to make her living from social media. Um, she'd spent her teenage years playing the game, he says, gaining followers, dieting, finding the perfect photo, filtering and tinkering, and yet she pulled out of it all. She said this. She talked about the over... She talked about over... Uh, she realised it was all fake, essentially. She talked about over-sexualisation, perfect food photos, and perfect travel vlogs. It is a textbook how I got famous. Everyone goes through life differently. Myself growing up with social comparing, so easily available, it consumed me. I spent 12 to 16 wishing I was someone else, and then 16 to 19 constantly moulding myself, editing and self-promoting the best parts of my life, which turned into a massive career based on numbers and how I looked aesthetically. Being born into this screen-dominated age... We are taught to mould ourselves in order to gain the most social validation. I've simply taken myself out of the sculpting studio. I don't want to look to others for how I should live, speak and create. 
And then she says this, I don't blame anyone for my actions or how much I was absorbed by social media, my appearance in this 2D world. It was me. I was being deceitful. I was lost. I was sick. I needed serious help. But of course, I didn't know that at the time. At the time, I thought, more money, more of these friends, being thinner, that would solve this internal misery. And you can tell it, it caused, or you can probably guess it caused, ripples at the time. Um, in fact, um, two of her former friends, twin sisters, they're on YouTube, Nina and Randa, I've got no idea about these things anyway, but um, Nina and Randa, I did Google them, they're still there, they went so far as to post a 15 minute takedown of her hoax and labelling her as a huge fake. Um, they, actually, they actually removed that YouTube video, um, it wasn't there when I looked. Um, for the record, today, Nina and Randa have 66,000 Instagram followers. Um, Neil had 570,000. Um, YouTube twins may have other motivations in mind besides speaking truth to power. It's just striking, isn't it, that somebody from within the system um, pulls out of it because they realise how toxic it is. And I guess we, I say we generously, um, we will get something of that. The dopamine hits as you post something. And the concerns when people don't respond. Haven't they seen it? Why haven't they responded? I'm a friend up in Scotland. Uh, they've got three kids and life is hard. And this is a true story. And they found, they realised that if they posted pictures of their babies when they had them, then they got a whole load of likes. And that helped. That made them feel much better. And suddenly they realised, hang on, we're relying on this. Um, we're doing this with a, for a reason. We, we want to be liked because we're feeling low. And so we're going online rather than to bodily people to talk to them. So they stopped. So we can look at Essina O'Neill, and she's an extreme, obviously, but there's a sense in which I guess we can associate with something of that if we are involved in social media at all. As we thought last week, though, face-to-face is, is harder. Um, in church, we can't hide. I think lots of this is to do with hiding. But the way in which we hide when you self-edit, you, you find the filter, you, you... I was chatting to, um, I think it was... Chris Phillips and they had been somewhere beautiful in the past, somewhere like Thailand. And, is it there? Can't think now. But um, um, there were people taking photos of this sunset rather than actually just watching it and liking it. And actually, they were taking hundreds of pictures of this sunset to get the perfect one, um, <coughs> rather than just admiring this beautiful sunset. Um, so there's a sort of self-editing thing where we, we keep going till we get the right thing. But then also. Um, you separate yourselves from them. We, we put up the mask and the facade. We pretend to be somebody else so that when we see you face to face and actually talk about how, we, how really is life going, then there's an honesty there. Church can be hard because you don't have the instant approval that we crave. And so in one sense, it comes down to glory. These hearts that we have are our glory seeds. We want to be wanted. We like to be liked. And social media can be a fantastic way to do that. So there's a question, is our life about me or is it about him? He says this, he says, The sad truth is many of us are addicted to our phones because we crave immediate approval and affirmation. And because of that then, we get this idea of um, FOMO. Fear of missing out. Uh, I would... A few thoughts on FOMO... um, 
FOMO has been around, it seems to me, since Satan in the Garden of Eden. That seems to be the kind of core, in one sense, of his temptation of Adam and Eve, is their fear of missing out. Um, And the problem is, if we are horizontally focused, as often we can be with our digital media, then FOMO and social media go hand in hand. Because I'm looking at what you're posting, and I am concerned, A, that I'm going to miss it. So there's this whole thing where, if you post, for perhaps particularly a younger generation than me, but if you post something, and I don't like it within ten minutes, or if they can see that I have seen it and not commented on it, or liked it, or loved it, then there's a kind of, there's a rivalry, not a rivalry, but almost a, a kind of concern and a hatred going on there. People can be so tied to their Instagram feeds, particularly that if you don't respond straight away, um, then you'll get uh, problems at school the next day, um, which is a sad thing. Um, uh, Anxiety online, two things he brings out, hopefully. One is status anxiety, what will people think of me? Um, Then the other one is disconnection anxiety, I connect, therefore I am. If you've not connected and logged in recently, then is there an anxiety that comes there? Um, speaking to my 68-year-old um, stepmom before I came out, she left her phone at our house a couple of weeks ago, and she found by the next morning she was anxious without her phone. What am I? Have I texts and WhatsApps and concerns that I have? Should I go home and get it? Um, and she's not on Jim. Um, Kevin Van Hooser says this. Uh, the sobering question for the disciple is whether our attention is being drawn to something worthwhile. This is really helpful, I think. Spectacles are ephemeral, which is why those who suffer from FOMO are always on the lookout for the next big thing. Disciples who are awake to reality have their attention fixed on the only breaking news that ultimately matters, namely the news that the kingdom of God has broken into our world in Jesus Christ. That is, FOMO, in one sense, is all about the next big thing, little stories. And there's a place for them, perhaps, But the gospel is all about the big thing, the big story. And these little things that can draw us in mean that we can lose sight of the big thing. Um, As well as that, as we've seen, we have these envious hearts. And so your posts and your images and your likes and your tweets and your statuses, how many people comment, can be a problem for me and my heart. It can be a stumbling block because we compare and we contrast each other. Um, This is from a guy called Brad Littlejohn. We can readily tabulate how many likes, how many comments, how many favourites, how many retweets or repins our friends' status, picture, tweet, post received versus how many ours received. To the envious heart, each one of these little icons of approval is a red-hot poker stoking the burning fire of bitterness and envy. Um, I love this. This is not in the book. Um, But this is from a... It's actually not from Banksy, I thought it was, but it's from um, some graffiti artist from British Columbia. Do you get that? So because he's got no comments or likes or friends, um, then he is utterly distraught with his phone in his hand. In effect, social media becomes a bellows that keeps pumping fuel into an internal fire of our envy. Um, I'll be more quick on this one. Um, but there's a sense in which he talks about try reading at a cocktail party. Maybe the kind of thing you can do in Oxford, actually. But um, <laughs> if, you, if you're at a cocktail party and there's a hustle and bustle of conversations and music and snacks and things going on, to sit down and get out a book would be a weird thing to do. 
Or so he likens that to trying to read in our current culture. It's hard because of all that's going on. With a click you can be on Facebook, you can be on Twitter, there are images for us to view, there are stories to follow, there are blind alleys to get lost down, there are all kinds of distractions. Which means we're finding it hard to read. We find it hard to concentrate. There are people whose job it is to capture our attention. And the nickname for it is, is Catology. And their job is to distract us, to adjust our behaviour patterns, to capture our attention. So there are algorithms that show us posts that we are more likely to read because of previous things we've liked or followed. They are wanting to capture your attention, to distract you and to adjust your behaviour pattern. For me, I've, I've liked a couple of... Um, don't judge me. Uh, a couple of um, running things recently. Trying to do a bit more running, and and I um, I get loads of adverts for running things. It's extraordinary. Um, yeah, it's just weird. One or two clicks, and suddenly you are bombarded for the next six months with all kinds of protein drinks and <laughs> shoes and non-chafing, I don't know, anyway. <laughs> Seriously, John Fenning will know about this sort of stuff, than me, but um, in his book he talks about them being digital marshmallows. Um, it's, it's a thing that you kind of go, oh, and you bite that, and then suddenly, oh, there's another one there, and another one there, and before you know it, you're sort of five paces over there, you've left your book here, um, because this first marshmallow has taken you off. Which means our attention span is reduced, we don't read as deeply, um, we've been trained to not linger over digital text, so there have been studies done, experiments to show if you read a text on your phone and the same text in a book, you take in more from the book. That doesn't mean, I guess, we don't read on phones, but it means there's a different kind of reading, perhaps, that happens, that needs to happen. Um, a guy called Nicholas Carr, who's an author, um, said this. He said, once I was a scuba diver in the sea of words, now I zip along the surface like a guy on a jet ski. That's quite helpful. I can find myself doing that sometimes as I read books because I've been taught to read quickly on a screen. Um, there's a rapper pastor called Trip Lee. He says, the more time I spend reading 10 second tweets and skimming random articles online, the more it affects my attention span, weakening the muscles I need to read scripture for long distances. And again, the next one as well, because we are not good at reading anymore, so we find it hard to identify ultimate meaning. He talks about this. He talks about junk food for the soul. The nutritional deficiency of the stuff that is being produced means we have an appetite for novelty. There's something that kind of captures us. It's the clickbait thing. They will, they will advertise in such a way that you think, I wonder what that is. And we click through. There's this sort of immediacy. Incre- in- increasingly, Facebook and Twitter are where we're going for our news now. We don't go to the news pages anymore, but we go onto Facebook and Twitter for, for real time. What hashtag is trending? Why is it trending? So he talks about the need for deep wisdom, for cherishing depth rather than immediacy, for planning to take time and effort and concentra- concentration and perseverance rather than 280 characters, but actually to sit still, to think. He talks as well about the idea of faithful obedience over frivolous information. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. Um, I'll do a couple more and then we'll see if there's any more time for questions.
questions. I'm sorry, I've spoken far too much. Never mind. Um, cameras are brilliant. I think actually one of the things I like most about phones is the idea of having a camera. So you can, as people did, take a photo of the, the overview to see, or well, rather than scribble it all down, I'll have it on my phone here. And that can then sync with my computer, and lo and behold, it's there. Um, but what does this culture of images mean? Um, fish live in water. Celebrities live in replicating images. For celebrities to survive another day, they must find ways of replicating images of themselves over and over. Celebrities must stay in the news. That is their, that is their job. And the corporations that bank on the celebrities need to keep pushing these icons forward too. This means celebrity culture survives on cameras. Lots and lots of cameras. And, as I say, our smartphones do have incredible cameras on them. And I think there are incredible blessings there. But he talked about three questions for us to consider. Interesting. There's two. Okay, yep. One is the social capacity for our phones. So, you take a photo and you share it. Oh, here's a picture of, I took a picture of Josh yesterday, some of you saw probably, because um, he had got a, a, an award at Parkrun. We'll, we'll share that, it's great. Let's, let's encourage Josh, let's, um, let's let the grandparents know, all that kind of stuff. But actually it's changing the way we do life because of these photos. So this is um, from someone called uh, Donna Freitas, the happiness effect. Um, people used to do things and then share them. And the approval you gained, whatever you were putting out there, was a byproduct of the actual activity. Now, the anticipated approval is what's driving the behaviour or activity. Does that make sense? So we become actors. We become, um, we become sharers. We live in such a way that we can share now. Rather than just kind of sharing cool stuff that you see through daily life, you think, ah, oh, if I go that way, if I do that thing, or go to that place, then I will be able to share the picture that I take. It's not in the book, but you do see it in the crazy guys who kind of climb up the um, cranes and stuff. I mean, if you didn't take a picture, probably wouldn't do it. But the fact that they take a picture or they video themselves doing it is so they can share it and get a level of notoriety. Um, the second one is to do with memories. Um, Again, I think this goes a different ways, actually. Sometimes we find photos that we take on holiday are really helpful because they remind us of good things. Um, they're sort of a blip. Oh, yeah, I remember that swimming pool. That was a fantastic week, whatever it might be. Um, but the other thing is that photos mean that we are less able to retain discrete memories. So we outsource the memory to the camera. There's a 2D snapshot, and then you miss all kinds of other contours of the memory itself. You miss the context of it, you miss the meaning of it, you miss the smell, the touch, the taste, because you've got your photo and everyone's happy. Um, this was a great image um, here. I'll show you why in a second. Uh, we're in Detroit, it's Johnny Depp on the red carpet, and there you have the crowd, everyone there, um, on their phones, except <laughs> this lady here. And she's just enjoying it. Isn't that great? She's just looking at Johnny Depp. <laughs> she's not got her camera out um, and so it was, it was printed in a number of um, uh, news articles a number of years ago again he hasn't mentioned it in the book but I just thought it was a really nice um, opportunity for us to think maybe we can just enjoy that situation and that context and that experience rather than have to take a photo of it don't have to take a photo of it but often our knee-jerk reaction is that we again not in the book obviously do you watch Michael McIntyre sometimes do you ever see that 
and you know the surprise star of the um, night type thing and you know that it com- someone comes out and the walls fall apart and they're on the stage some people nodding thank you um, unexpected star alright um, there was one the other day and this kind of karate lady see that one and the first thing she does when she sees Michael McIntyre she's like she's got a whole crowd in front of her like literally thousands of people Michael McIntyre stood next to her giggling she goes gets her phone out and goes take a photo quick and you think no no you've got thousands of people in front of you um, with Michael McIntyre you don't need to take a photo of it but it's amazing how the immediate reaction is I'm going to capture this on camera um, the other one there we go is the third thing when it comes to the questions is the sort of glory grabbing now. We think this is almost the last opportunity to, to get close to greatness. And so we want to, to grab it for our own glory. Um, again, danger with cameras there. How do we break free? gives a few um, thoughts. One is just to have our eyes open, to admit that we are targets of digital mega corporations and that our attention spans have been monetized that there are such a thing as captologists trying to attract your attention. Just being aware of it in the first place may be helpful. And the second thing is to live um, in the present, to enjoy, rather than having to take a photo of it. And then the third one is just to celebrate the right thing. So in a sense, I don't think cameras are always bad, clearly. Of course they're not. But actually enjoy and share things that point us to the Lord for his kindness and his goodness. Um, I'm going to get through the last couple of things, I think. Three more to go. Um, can anybody remember Ashley Nelson? Four years ago? Three and a half years ago? Um, as you can see, life is short have an affair. Um, Canadian uh, kind of matchmaking service, perhaps, you call it that. Um, 2015, they got hacked and there was a massive web leak of all the people who had paid for their details to be uploaded and actually a number of them had changed their minds and said, could you remove, please, my details? Turns out they hadn't. Um, Someone hacked it and release all the information onto the internet. You can imagine various, numerous marriages died as a result. But the point is, anonymity is where sin flourishes. The internet is private, individualistic, it's personal, and therefore it is a place where sin thrives. It is dangerous. Technology makes sexual sins thrive. Firstly, because it's discreet, as it is here. Um, other apps that are out there, clearly not Ashley Madison, which I guess is a particular niche thing, but the ability to scroll through people, to judge them, to swipe left or right on Tinder, it might be. Um, there's a GPS option, I'm told, on something like Tinder, to see people around this area, near where you are, and whether you'd be interested in a relationship with them, or just hooking up for sex. It is an option now in a way that never has been in the past. Or at least it's been a very different kind of option in the past. So partly, um, technology makes sexual sins thrive because of the discreetness and the privacy, but also because of porn. 
in reality. Um, in the book he quotes that 50% of Christian men aged 18 to 29 admit ongoing regular porn use. Half the people between 18 and 29 would have an issue. Um, 10% of women. And porn is ubiquitous and available online. In the way that in the past it was, had to be a far more kind of physical bodily thing. You've got to go into a news agent and you've got to get through the embarrassment, I guess, of getting to the top shelf. They're still there and you go and buy it and the, you're awkward and they're awkward and there's a brown paper bag involved and now it's just a few clicks online. It is huge now. In fact, it has driven the internet largely. In fact, as sex often does, it drives technology. It pushes the boundaries of technology. And then all kinds of knock-on effects, clearly, with distortions and understanding of sex, the reality of, um, I guess, particularly teenage boys going through life with a misunderstanding of of what sex is about. Um, I'm not going to go for this now, but he he does talk about an incredibly helpful... um, I might try and use it on Sunday morning, but a incredibly helpful overview of the nature of our faith being setting our hearts elsewhere. And so the problem with phones in one sense is you have this physical thing here and your heart is there. Whereas we are a people who, um, who have our... Because we've been raised with Christ, for example, then we set our, our hearts and minds on things above where Christ is, Colossians 3. Or we look not to the things that are seen, but to things that are unseen, 2 Corinthians 4. We walk by faith, not by sight, Corinthians 5. And so there's this whole stream and elements of our faith. We are people who live by faith. And yet these things in our hands mean that 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 gets distorted and squished down. And we end up losing our hope. um, Because it's all here and now. We lose sight of what's to come. Um, he doesn't use this image but I found it online and I loved it um, it's, this is picking up on some of what Dave was talking about he talks this is chapter 6 of the book um, and again I think we've mentioned it a few times on Sundays but th- this idea that we as human beings are to be mirrors we are meant to image what we worship we, the things we look at are the things that we become like in those sense. If we worship idols, then we become like those idols, Romans 1. If we worship Christ, we become like Christ, Romans 12. And yet the problem with these phones is that, well, like Narcissus, um, who's sort of on the screen there with a bit of doctoring, um, he was a, an attractive hunter in Greek mythology. He, he was ar- arrogant, incapable of, of loving or being loved, receiving love, and so he was cursed by Nemesis. He falls in love with the image he projects of himself and day after day bends over and looks at himself in the water and ends up... Um, uh, he, was spellbound, he was spellbound by the handsome stranger in the water. He did not know what it, that it was his own image that he had fallen in love with and he sat smiling at himself, forgetting to eat, forgetting to drink until he wasted away and died. And the sense in which the image that we want to project, project on social media is the thing that will end up causing us to wither and to die. It's not the real us. We, 
what we think others think of us profoundly shapes our identity and our value our search for belonging and so we crave acceptance and we become like what we admire you see the kind of culture of social media and those are the things that you end up slipping into and becoming like so you become less like yourself and more like them you know if everyone is taking photos of that kind of a thing then before we know it we're doing the same do you remember duck face selfies that's kind of gone now I think but that was a thing a few few years ago it's when you do the pouty thing Um, I'm not going to do it um, <laughs> was looking at me strangely um, but I think there are phases and things that you, you go through that become fashionable on social media for a time and people end up imaging those things and the culture that we're in anyway but the key is God of course didn't create us to be an end in ourselves we are meant to image him he is the end we are the means we are meant to point others to him but in the end we point others to ourselves Um, He said this, I wasn't going to say it, but it really struck me. He said, if people see us bored with God, absorbed with ourselves, and conformed to worldly celebrities, they will not see the image of Jesus reflected in us. Ouch. And last one. Let's see what you think about this. He said, because of the way in which we... So, to go back on, because of the way that they overtake and distort our identity that leaves us being isolated and unhealthy easily. Um, Dutch psychiatrist, not a Christian as far as I'm aware, um, J.H. Vandenberg, he says this, he says that loneliness is the nucleus of psychiatry. If loneliness didn't exist, we could reasonably assume that many psychiatric illnesses would not occur either. I don't know if that's an overstatement, That sounds pretty broad and sweeping to me. We may not quite agree, but it is a striking claim. We were made for bodily community. We were made for one another. It is not good for man to be alone. And yet, as we get isolated, increasingly so, I mean, we'll see this on a Sunday morning in weeks to come, it seems that mental illness is increasing, particularly amongst teenage teenage girls, actually. Of course, social media was meant to be social. It was meant to cure the epidemic, but actually it ended up exacerbating it. And some would say the problem is uh, technology always ends up isolating people. Have a think about that. Machines mean we don't need people. As technology increases, machines replace people and automation replaces interaction. In one sense, that's not a bad thing in and of itself but it does have implications Um, street vendors give way to vending machines fresh milk deliveries give way to dairy products preserved in refrigerators bankers give way to ATMs I haven't got the details of the book here but there's a book that he quotes from really helpfully to show that um, technology the author says will always lead towards isolation and loneliness the nature of the machine in one sense. I'm not sure I necessarily completely agree with that, but it's helpful to think through. The other thing that happens is that technology gets miniaturised and personalised, as we said last week. The I of iGen in one sense is internet, but the other is individualistic. Um, We have these little things in our hands. You can't see what I'm looking at, and I don't really like it when you look over my shoulder to see what I'm looking at, actually. Um, They're personalised and tiny. And then, again, because of that, we 
because of the personalisation thing, it means we're not going to interacting with people anymore. Social media can be a safe place to be where the algorithms load themselves to things that I like and things that aren't going to make me offended or grumpy. There you can surround yourself with people who speak like you and sound like you and think like you and you won't be challenged in your little echo chamber. And one person said this, I could put myself out for virtual inspection and validation while remaining in control, remote from the possibility of physical rejection. See, we can control the interaction that people have with the us that we project. And then at the same time, um, we, I think we come full circle, and here I'll press stop. He will talk of the need for solitude. We, we need space. We need quiet. In solitude, he says, we find ourselves, we prepare ourselves to come to the conversation with something to say that is authentic. Um, where you find solitude, presumably you don't find so many distractions. Um, you don't find all these beeps beeping at you to try and get you to click onto the next link or the next thing or the next notification. Solitude is hard when you've got social media or you've got a phone in your hand. But he would say, and I think I agree, the importance of solitude is a great thing for us to, to end on.